Um, the following are a list of uh, police comments that were taken from an actual police car. Uh, well, some people got pulled over for speeding. Uh, no, sir, we don't have quotas anymore. We used to have quotas, but now we're allowed to write as many tickets as we want. Warning? You want a warning? Okay, I'm warning you not to do that again or I'll give you another ticket. You didn't think we gave, uh, gave pretty women tickets? You're right, we don't. Sign here. Warnings. There are no excuses uh, when we speed, um, and there's no excuses uh, that uh, in chapters 1 and 2 of Romans that uh, there's no excuses for our sinfulness. Both in chapters 1 and 2, uh, the Apostle Paul addresses, first of all, the Gentile, the Romans, those who were raised in a pagan culture. He, he confronted them with their sin. And their sin was horrendous in Rome. And then in chapter 2, he said, but you Jews, you Jews who were chosen by God, you Jews who were, uh, who, who, you have God's law, God's word, you're just as sinful. And they said, what? What are you talking about? Well, there was no excuse, even for these religious uh, people. But then Paul responds to some objections that these, the moral bunch raised. And they said, wait a minute, if you're telling us that we have no excuse, if you're telling us that we're just like the Gentiles, then what advantage is there in being a Jew? In verse 1 of chapter 3. Or what value is there in circumcision? Paul responds, much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. Many of these Gentiles in the new church in Rome, many of the Gentiles they could have had excuse. They were raised in a pagan culture. They were raised believing in a plethora of gods and idols and pagan rituals. Like if we we're raised in eastern parts of the world, then we would be raised with gods like this on the left or in the middle. Well, on the left would be the eastern idols. We may have several of these in our homes if we we're Buddhist or Hindu or whatnot. Or if we we're raised Native American, we, we might be worshiping God through a totem pole these man-made images like this. But I was raised like that third picture. I was raised in a Christian home. Uh, my parents went to church, had me in the nursery on day one of my life, or maybe day two. My parents were involved in many ministries. They began uh, homes like the Omega houses we have in town uh, for men and women. They started a Christian coffee house during the hippie movement in the worst part of our hometown. And uh, there, when I was a young kid, I heard testimonies from gang members, from alcoholics and drug addicts, from those who were abused, from those who were involved in sexual misconduct. And uh, I was amazed at the transition and the transformation that transpired in these people's lives and how they loved Jesus after living such hard lives. And I got thinking, I mourn the fact that, man, God, why didn't you give me a testimony like this? My testimony is so stinking boring. It would be convincing to nobody. Until one former drug addict came up to me and said, John, are you crazy? He said, I wish I had your testimony being raised in a Christian home. That way I wouldn't have all this spiritual and emotional baggage, sinful baggage that I have to wade through in my life. I had an advantage. 
over these people. Living according to God's Word is always the best way to experience what we all desire within our hearts. We all desire freedom and joy and security and peace and and purpose. We all want these things. And when we do it God's way, then we experience more of that in our lives. So, the Jews have God's law, but what if they were to disobey? Then what, Paul? In verse 3, what if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. In other words, he's saying simply God is faithful and he will continue to be faithful to pursue us even when we disobey, because that's what type of God he is. He's a God that chases after the prodigal son or waits for the prodigal son to return with open arms. These Jews had a second objection in verse 5. Okay, so, but if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust and bringing his wrath on us? Paul says, I'm only using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? So, if our sin and unfaithfulness will highlight God's grace, his love, his mercy, his forgiveness— then his judgment of me will be unjustified. That's what they're saying. It would be like Judas Iscariot, who after betraying Jesus said, hey, you know what? God chose me to do this. And, um, and my betrayal of Jesus led, of course, to his crucifixion, but you needed his crucifixion and his resurrection in order to be saved. So really, I'm the hero, you know? Judas could have, could have justified his sin, to which Paul responds, Uh, Well, I mean, before I do that, we use that same argument. Oftentimes, we think, you know, if if my sin highlights God's forgiveness and His grace and people see God's unconditional love for me, then won't that bring glory to God? And therefore, why would God punish me? Why would He uh, judge me in any way? Why would I have to suffer consequences? Well, Paul doesn't even respond to this objection because it's too illogical. He will later deal with it in chapter 6. In, in detail, but we'll go on to the third objection. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage as Jews? Paul says, not at all. As a Jew, he said, for we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. Paul was saying, are we not, are, are we not more righteous than the Gentiles? Because after all, we've been given the law. And Paul responds, not at all. The whole world is equally fallen and stands guilty before a just judge. In verse 10, as it's written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. He goes on, verses 13 through 18, your mouths betray you. They're full of cursing and bitterness. Your feet betray you, verses 15 and 17. They're swift to shed innocent blood and to rush into disobedience. Verse 17, your mind betrays you. Your minds do not know peace. In verse 18, your eyes betray you. There's no fear of God in your eyes. You walk around in pride and self-sufficiency. In verse 22, he concludes, therefore, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. So then they might have objected, what's the purpose of the law then? 
You've given us the law. If the law makes no difference in our lives, then what's… And he tells us in verse 20, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. And in verse 19, we're held accountable to God through the law. For example, if I had an unbelieving friend who I was in a relationship with, or if I met someone and had a conversation with them, and they said, I don't need, I don't really need religion. I don't need God. I don't need spiritual stuff because you know what? I'm a good person. I'm moral. To which I would respond, well, how moral do you have to be to go to heaven? He said, well, I'm good enough. I mean, I do this and this and that, and I don't do this and this. And okay, well, so what types of, what types of things? Well, I try to obey God's commandments. That's it. Oh, you do? Like the Ten Commandments? To which they'll respond, yeah, like the Ten Commandments. I don't murder. I said, good. Well, let's look at the first two commandments. Do you ever put anything before God? Do you ever have an idol that's more important to you? Not a wooden idol, but just anything in life that's more important to you at any time than God is. Well, of course I do. Everyone does. Well, me too, often. Uh, So we're guilty of the first and second commandment. And then you tick down the list of the commandments. Have you ever disrespected your parents or dishonored them? Of course I have. Who hasn't? Well, then you're guilty, and I have too. I'm guilty of that. Uh, Have you ever stolen anything? Well, nothing major. Well, anything? I can remember a few times in my life um, we're guilty. Have you ever coveted your neighbor's belongings and, and wished that? Of course I have. Same here. Have you ever broken the Sabbath? Have you ever entertained anger or lust in your heart? Have you ever used God's name in vain? Yes, yes, and yes. Well, then we're guilty many, many, many times over. So when you're telling me that when you face God one day and he looks at all of your broken commandments, you're going to say, I was good enough. Even one sin we looked at last week is enough to keep you out of heaven before holy God and holy heaven because of the stain of your unholy sin. But the law makes us conscious of our sin. It holds us accountable. The the Ten Commandments do. J. Vernon McGee used to say the law is like a mirror. You you pick up a handheld mirror in the morning, you look in it, and, oh, man, I look look bad. Your hair is messed up. You need makeup if you're a woman or a guy sometimes. (laughs) Um, you, uh, You have to brush your teeth. Um, whatever. And that's what the law is. The law simply reflects the true reality of, of who you are. But the mirror can do nothing to change that. You can't brush your teeth with a mirror. You can't comb your hair with a mirror or wash your body with a mirror, apply makeup with a mirror. You can't do these things in the same way the law or the commandments, they are true and they reveal your true state but it's powerless to change you. And this is what Paul is saying in verses 19 and 20 there. We've all sinned and fallen short. So how will we ever be righteous enough to be with God for eternity? Paul continues, verse 21. But now apart from the law or the the commandments, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Notice, 
The law of righteousness is from who? It's from God. It's God's righteousness. It's given through who? By trusting in Jesus Christ. All for those who believe. Simply believe? That's all we need to do is believe? You got to be kidding me. That doesn't seem right. I'm better than that. I attend church. I pay my taxes. I do good at my work. I change my oil every 3,000 miles. I cut my grass. I, I trim the hedges of even my elderly neighbors. I give money to missionaries and ministries. I volunteer for things in town. I, I give to fundraisers. You know what? I, I'm a good person. Well, we confuse relative goodness with absolute goodness. God demands and the law demands absolute goodness, perfect goodness. When I compare myself to you or you to me, then we say, yeah, I'm a little better than that person. And, but we're all fallen and sinners. It's an unfair comparison. We need to compare ourselves to the holy God, absolute goodness. And Paul says in verse 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What's the glory of God? It's namely what God intended for all of us before the fall. What Adam and Eve used to be, they were perfect in the garden until the fall. And then they fell short of the glory of God, and we have too ever since. If we seek to live by the requirements of the law, if we seek to prove our righteousness by the law, then we will be judged by the requirements of the law. That's as if to say, I'm on the bowling team at high school or in college, and if I want to be accepted as a bowler, I have to bowl a 300 every time. Or if I'm in baseball, I have to bat a thousand. I can never strike out. I can never miss. I have to get a hit all the time. Or if I'm a golfer, I can never shank it or hook it. What's the use? You can't find any golf balls, right? But you have to hit it down. You have to par or do better every time. Or if, um, whatever, you know, you get the idea. You have to get perfect tens in your dives or gymnastics. You see, when God judges us, he not only looks at what we do, but he looks at why we do it and how we do it. It's like God's trifocals. That's how he, he, he sees us. He sees what we do or what we don't do that we should do, and we fall short there. But then he looks at our motives, the things we can't see, our heart motives. And God sees perfectly what our motives are, if they're selfish or if they're glorifying to him. And then, not only that, he looks at how we do it. Are we doing it in the flesh, in our own strength? Or are we doing it by the power of the Spirit living through us? Are we walking by the Spirit or walking by the flesh, Galatians says. Man, we so, we so fall short. But you might object, nobody's perfect. Why doesn't God just forgive us? Why doesn't he love us and forgive us if he loves us so much? Let me share with you a story that I read in Discipleship Journal by Ken Geyer. He writes, years ago, someone created a movie which was told the story of Camelot. It's told of Kim, King Arthur and his fabled reign in England based on the rule of law rather than the force of arms. He was very proud that he based his law upon total impartiality. The law applied to everyone no matter what the, who they were. But Camelot also told the story of the king's love for his wife and the queen, Guinevere. Tragically, Guinevere fell into an adulterous affair with Arthur's most trusted knight, Sir Lancelot. And their affair was discovered by King Arthur's illegitimate son named Mordred. 
Now, Mordred hated his father, the king. And this discovery gave him the opportunity to destroy the very things that Arthur held dear. Lancelot was fortunate enough to escape, but Guinevere was not so fortunate. The just and impartial law that King Arthur had established for all of his people ended up condemning his wife. So Guinevere was placed on trial, found guilty by a jury, and was sentenced to die at the stake. As the day of execution arrived, people came from miles around with one question in their minds, would the king let her die or not? Mordred, the king's son, gleefully declared, Father, Arthur, what a magnificent dilemma you're in. Let her die and your life is over. Let her live and your life as a ruler is a fraud. What will it be, Arthur? Do you want to kill the queen or do you want to kill the law? Well, if he carried out the sentence, he would uphold the law and validate himself to be a just and impartial king. Yet in doing so, he called himself into question his love. He called into question his love. Would the king burn his tender wife, whom he affectionately lately called his Jenny? Well, his heart told him to set her free. And if he did, though, it would certainly remove any doubt of his love. But by bending the justice and showing partiality, he would call into question the right to rule. It would destroy forever this, his ability to reign as a righteous and impartial king. Tragically, but resolutely, Arthur decided treason has been committed. The jury has ruled. Let justice be done. So high from the castle window, King Arthur stands and watches as Guinevere enters the courtyard. She walks to the unlit stake where the executioner stands with a waiting torch. Arthur turns away, emotion brimming in his eyes. A herald says, the queen is at the stake, your majesty. Shall I signal the torch? And Arthur is completely devastated. Again, the herald calls, this time with greater urgency, your master, your majesty, your majesty, shall I signal the torch? The king cannot answer. Arthur's love for Jenny spills from his broken heart. I can't, I can't, I can't let her die. Seeing Arthur crumble, his son Mordred relishes the moment. Well, you're human after all, aren't you, Arthur? Human and helpless. And tragically, Arthur realizes the truth of Mordred's remark. Being only human, he is indeed helpless. But where this story ends, the greatest story ever told begins. God did what no human would ever hope to do. When we stood guilty of breaking the law, and when we were sentenced to death, spiritual death and eternal death, God stepped down from heaven. He took our place at the stake, fulfilling the justice of the law, the penalty being death. And he died the death that we deserved. He paid the debt that we did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. We needed, we needed someone to die in our place and wash away our sins. And this is how Paul concludes chapter 3 and verse 26 when he said, He, Jesus, did, did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So at the cross... We see justice, and we see the one who justifies. We see love and mercy that intersects at the cross. 
Romans 3.21, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Again, it's the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ. In verse 24, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came through Christ Jesus. There are some big words here. We are all justified freely. This word justified is courtroom terminology. It's the image of being in the courtroom. It means when one is declared uh, not guilty, they're declared righteous. All Their record is, is clear. Justified means just as if I'd never sinned. Because of Christ, we are justified because of his death. It's like when two friends were raised as little kids uh, best friends, one continued in a life of crime and the other continued in a life of college and graduation and ultimately became a lawyer and then a judge. And then one day, who stands in the courtroom of this judge but his best friend from childhood who was guilty of a heinous crime? And so the judge has to declare the law, sentence him. But the judge says, you know what? Either you pay this many hundreds of thousands of dollars or you're in prison for years. That's the sentence. The guy was incapable of paying. He didn't have a nickel to his name. And so the judge takes him behind the courtroom at the end and says, I'm going to write you a check for the amount you're set free. I'm declaring you not guilty because I paid the price on your behalf. Justification. We're justified in Christ by his grace. What is grace? It's a free gift of God's righteousness. It's free. It's nothing we can do to deserve grace. In fact, all religions spell religion D-O, do, because they teach that people have to do this and this and this to please God and earn their salvation. And the more they do, the better they do, the more righteous they, you know, they climb that ladder and, and there's God welcoming them. That's what religion teaches. But Christianity spells it D-O, N-E, done, because Christ did it all for us on the cross. We could never have earned God's approval based on our own goodness, because we all fall short time and time again. We need to simply receive this gift of grace that Jesus offers us. A payment had to be made, and he made it on the cross. And when he was on the cross, he took our sin upon his body, and in exchange, he gave us his perfect righteousness as a sinless, the only sinless person to ever live on this earth. Verse 24, all were justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. This word redemption is a slave market imagery. It's when slaves were sold or auctioned, um, not just in our history, but early on, slavery was huge in Rome. And, uh, and so, if an owner would purchase someone as a slave, he could say, okay, you belong to me. I set you free. That's what Jesus did. He purchased us the price of his blood, and then he set us free. He said, now you are free because I've set you free by my blood. 25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. The sacrifice of atonement is temple imagery. It harkens back to the Old Testament sacrificial system where the just penalty of sin was always death. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin, the Old Testament says. And so because 
the Israelites, all humanity, they were guilty. They had to sacrifice animal after animal, day after day. Thousands and thousands of animals were sacrificed in the temple. Why? To cover the sin of the people. They had all these festivals where they killed thousands of animals. But guess what? These animals never took away the sin of the people. Instead, it just covered the sin temporarily. In Hebrews 10, we're told, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But in verse 25, we're told that when God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood, that took away sin. It didn't just cover our sin. It took it away when we place our trust in him. 1 John 3 tells us, but you know that he appeared so that he might take away your sins. John 1.29, John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. 1 John 1, the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Not just covers us, but purifies us. That's the good news. You can do nothing to earn God's approval. I guess, why do we obey then? We don't obey to earn our righteousness or earn our salvation. We obey because we're saved. I don't love my wife so that she will remain married to me. We are married so I love her. I don't, love, I don't do good things to earn her love and, and, and make her love me more. We love each other and so in response, we serve each other. And we do nice things for each other. I want to conclude with this story here from Dallas McGill. One more story. It's not quite as long as the first. Dallas McGill tells a story. He says, I have a friend who worked in a slaughterhouse, putting to death cattle, hogs, chickens, turkeys, you name it, and he did it. And if you ate, if we ate some of the meat, if we ate at McDonald's today, then we are beneficiaries of these employees in slaughterhouses, right? Well, one day there was an exceptional animal that was penned in the slaughter barn. It was a lamb. Usually, my friend voiced, I would quickly slaughter the beast, and it would fall to the ground. But I had never killed a lamb before. So Sammy went on in detail, his friend. He said, I would usually have to chase down the animal to be killed. They were all very skittish, probably because of the smell of death and blood. But you know, this little lamb just walked right up to me and nudged my hand with his head. I stuck to my routine and I grabbed this animal under the chin and put the knife to its throat, pulled hard and swift, and the cut was deep and the blood sprayed everywhere. I let go of the animal. It staggered around as if it were drunk. With this blood all over my hands, I dropped the knife in disbelief when I witnessed what happened next. The lamb did not fall to its knees. Rather, the little lamb staggered back to me and nudged my bloody hand for the second time with his nose and started licking the blood from my hands. 
I could not believe what I was experiencing. I thought of how Jesus suffered and shed his blood for me on the cross. Something wet started splashing onto the ground, and I noticed it was coming from my face. I was weeping. My life was forever changed. I quit that job that day, came to a new realization of the gravity of Christ's crucifixion. That horrific event was far worse than I could have ever imagined. Jesus went to the cross willingly because he couldn't stand the thought of living for eternity without me, without you, the people whom he created, who he loves, this Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So we're told in John 3.16 that Jesus died for the world. He gave up his son. Jesus, God loves us that he gave up his son, that whoever believes will not perish. But we need to believe. Um, Yet to all who believed in him, to those who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. And so that's the gospel. That's the gospel. And I would be amiss to not, not say this. Jesus died to forgive our sin, but that's only half the gospel. The other half of the gospel is he was raised so that we could be holy and righteous because it's not any longer us doing good things for him. It's really him living his life through us by his spirit. He empowers us to live the life that he's called us to do because of Christ living in our lives. That's the gospel. And that's later on in Romans. We'll address that later. Let's pray. And so Jesus, in a church this size with, with two services, I, I don't know where everyone stands with you. I don't know if people have ever surrendered their lives to you and admitted their sinfulness before you and need for a Savior. And so if there's someone in here who's never done that, I pray that today would be the, the day to do so. The, the day just simply to say, Jesus, I admit that I fall short. I am not far from perfect. I am far from perfect. I need a Savior. I recognize this morning that you died for me on the cross to take my sin upon you, and that in exchange for my sin, you offer me your righteousness so that I could stand right with God both now and for eternity. Thank you for your amazing gift of grace. I receive Jesus into my life right now. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.